And when we saw their statistics and their projections, we knew we were dealing with a very, very different beast. They had no concern for science or accuracy. It was all about the panic. Today I sit down with Justin Hart, author of Gone Viral, How COVID Drove the World Insane. When the threat of mortality comes down from so many avenues, over every medium, over every channel, everyone is telling you, you're going to die if you don't take these interventions. It does crazy things to society. Hart realized early on in the pandemic that what we were hearing from our health agencies and the media didn't match up with the data. So he started Rational Ground to provide the public with reasoned evidence and fact-based analysis about the impact of COVID-19. From all of the studies they reviewed, they found there was no significant evidence whatsoever that masking would stop the viral pathogen. This is American Thought Leaders, and I'm Yanya Kelleck. Justin Hart, such a pleasure to have you on American Thought Leaders. Jan, thanks for having me on. I'm glad to be here. Justin, I've really enjoyed over the last few years visiting uh, your website, Rational Ground. I always found it to be a place where I knew I could get some new information that was heavily backed by data, let's say. And, and frankly, this, was a little bit, this has been a little bit difficult over the last while. So. We, uh, we launched that website the summer of 2020. Before then, we were posting on our own blogs or a lot on Twitter. But all of a sudden, the waves started coming again, and we realized that the policies they had implemented early in the pandemic weren't going away anytime soon. And so we pulled together a group of folks, kind of like a Battlestar Galactica group of ragtag experts, analysts, moms and dads, and we put together Rational Ground as a response to the stringent policies that we're still enacting and harming ourselves and especially our kids. As the fall year of the school year came about, 2020, we realized we're gonna have to get organized and really have a strong response. So I'm glad you enjoyed that, but we, uh, we definitely uh, pulled together some yeoman's work to make that happen. Well, and I also just recently finished reading your book, which traces some of the work, of course, you did in Rational Ground and some of the things you discovered along the way, let's just say. You know, you basically dedicate a chapter, almost chapter to a policy or a chapter to an issue. Quick chapters, quick summaries, I like that. But the thing, when you come out the other end of this book, you realize, my goodness, did anything work? Does anything successful? And so it reminded me of a, of a tweet I put out back in October of 21. And I'll just read it to you and I wanna get your reaction, okay? It just struck me, we're witnessing in real time the spectacular accelerating failure of the quote, governance by expert class model, its follies daily led, laid bare, even as its proponents double down on touting its benevolent inevitability. <laughs> and it also struck me, in this lies hope. That's yeah, it's really insightful. I, I think what happens, there's the science, right? This is what science tells us. But as soon as it gets inserted into public policy, all bets are off. Things become a little bit wacky. The impacts that people projected, they have no idea about. But I think you're right. I, I say at the outside of my book, I said, I'm not a healthcare expert. I don't pretend to be one. And I say, I normally wouldn't insert myself into someone else's domain. But you know, they, they had no problem inserting themselves into my domain, my kids' education, my health care, my barber shop, right? And so I hope they'll forgive me 
if I check the math, because that's sort of my forte. And when we check the math and we realize it was completely off and that they were basing these very rigorous, stringent policies like stay-at-home orders and quarantining healthy people, we said something is absolutely amiss here. We've got, we've got our policy really wacky. When the experts in a particular domain like science proved themselves to be real follies in the expertise around public policy, well, that's when disaster ensues, I think. There's also this very interesting nuance, right? Sometimes you can have an expert, and that expert is an expert in a very, very specific field, and maybe they really are an expert. But to have that expert be crafting the public health policy overall would be kind of insane, right? Because how, would, how could they possibly know? That is not their job. Their job hasn't been to try to integrate all of the science with the social outcomes that are likely to result from certain types of policy. Yeah, I mean, you think about masks, for example, that's always a touch point of, of great contention over the last three years. But even if masks were 100% effective, uh, flashback, breaking news, they are not. Uh, even if they were, it's unclear whether mandating that for an entire public is the right policy in general. Um, when you put these mandates that infringe on people's individual rights, you're typically breaking something. And when you break something, it's hard to, to earn it back. I think um, panic and the threat of mortality was a bludgeon that our health overlords, as I sometimes call them, used against the populace to, to get their way. They, they really do. If, if I... If I think about it, I often tell my team, uh, put them in the best light. What is, what is their best intention? What's the, the best interpretation that you have of this thing? Maybe their implementations, these policies that they nailed down on top of us, maybe they really did think that was going to help. But uh, in the end, you have to go with the evidence, and you always have to stick with your rights. I think if you see the government coming after you with a bludgeon, and they're coming first to take away your rights, if you stick your neck out against that, you can't go wrong. You'll, you'll probably end up on the right side of the equation. Well, I definitely want to talk about this new Cochrane mask study, this st meta study of, I think, 78 different studies. And I know you've been talking about it, and I think it sort of settles the science, as people say, much better than, frankly, anything up to now. We're going to talk about that. But before we go there, I want to go back to this, you know, thing that I was observing back in October of 21. All of these policies are failures and just it's almost unbelievable. We could go through your book, you know, chapter by chapter because it's basically, you know, policy by policy. But but which are the ones that 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 come to your which 10 come to your mind or you know. Well, you can go sequentially, right? Mm -hmm. They they first of all they got the transmission of the disease wrong. They felt that it was primarily coming over droplets, uh, that it was coming over a specific set of all people. We now know that it's likely a very aerosolized disease. They got that wrong. You then go on to their projections around mortality. At one point, the WHO predicted that this was going to be a, uh, a mortality where three out of 100 people would die. Dr. Fauci got in front of Congress and he mixed up terms around the fatality rate of people that actually test positive for COVID and are sick and those that have it and have no idea. He predicted that one out of 100 people would die. The flu has a mortality of 0.1%. Sure. This has a mortality of 10 times that. We now know it's a factor lower than that. In fact, for the vast majority of people, 
85% of the country under the age of 65, their mortality, that is their risk of dying, is lower than that of influ is, is higher than that of is lower than influenza, meaning that they're more likely to die if they catch the flu. Um, now, when we go on to the next part, they predicted that we were going to have massive overruns on hospital, uh, you know, stagnation of people getting uh, pinched there at the at the ER. Our ERs are still down today. In fact, hospitals are struggling to retain any sort of economic viability because people are still scared to go there. The impacts on that are paramount. Then you think about the silly things they implemented, like plexiglass. They implemented that countrywide. Every single 7-Eleven, uh, even your schools, turned into like uh, looked like a, a bank teller uh, with these bulletproof glass in front of them. It was it was disconcerting. It was disorienting, and it turns out it was completely useless. The the CDC came out and very quietly removed that recommendation for retail and for schools in March of 21. Not a lot of people know that because they realized, oh, this is actually preventing uh, a lot of airflow. And it's also another place you have to clean. And then you go on to the next intervention, perhaps the most stringent of it, the stay-at-home orders, the lockdowns, the closing of businesses. Our first clues that something were wrong were from oncologists who called us and said, Either COVID has cured cancer or something else is happening here altogether because they were seeing half as many patients in the spring of 2020 as they were the year before. Not because people weren't getting cancer. They were. They were just too scared to go out and seek treatment. The impact on that we're still feeling and we'll see, we'll see, we'll see that trickle in here now for years as people discover late stage cancers that they could have caught early on. Then you go on so, to the next So it was, wasn't necessarily just treatment. It was also just checking to see if, for example, if you had prostate cancer or something, right? Exactly. Those regular yeah. checkups there. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Even 50% of young infants and children missed immunizations over that time because a lot of primary care physicians had closed down their shops except for emergency issues. I mean, the list goes on and on. The quarantining, I think, of children for the slightest exposure was perhaps the most damaging of the policies that they implemented. Almost everyone agrees that that was wrong. While most of the schools were closed down in the spring of 2020, when we came back to school in the fall of 20, and then the, the winter of 21, and then on through the next year, the big issue became exposure to COVID. In fact, I would say that the fall and winter of the 21-22 school season was far more frustrating and just dreadful for families than it was from earlier times. Because at that point, there was a policy implemented almost across the nation that if your kid had the slightest exposure to anyone that had a positive case, they would have to stay home for 10 days. This is what made it personal for me. I've got, I've got eight kids. I've got a Brady Bunch family, and we have, uh, we have three kids that are under the age of five. And so from the time that Thanksgiving came around, in 2021, we had kids at home for the entire rest of the year, missing school, not because they were sick, but because some student had a positive test that came back and the entire classroom had to go home for 10 days. Well, and I just- Dreadful experience. I just wanna remind our viewers, and this because I was actually just tell, speaking with an Uber driver about this earlier today, is that unlike influenza, COVID has this very, or uh, coronavirus or CCP virus as we call it at Epoch Times, um, 
It has a very interesting characteristic, which is that children don't transmit it. And they also are at extremely low risk from it. In fact, you know, in some of the lower ages, it's basically statistically zero. So it's just unbelievable that these interventions, went, which obviously are going to have an impact, happened in this type of a context. And it would have this, this great psychological effect on kids. I mean, one in five children came up with ideations of, of suicide, especially young women. Um, you think about just the years of edu education they got lost. I mean, look, Jan, you and I were adults. When policies and politics get inserted into our lives, we try to deal with it. Hopefully, we'll bring it to the ballot box the next time it comes around. Our kids don't have that luxury. They also don't get those years back, right? I was over at a friend's house, and you talked about the impact on kids. His child, who was then in second grade, was coloring a Target type of coupon book, and there were all these pictures of kids and everything else, and he was dutifully taking a marker and putting a mask on all of the kids' faces because he thought that's how they should be. The psychological impact on our kids, thinking that they're a vector of disease, when, as you pointed out, there's really very little evidence, and in fact, a lot of evidence, they become a break on the disease. I'm just astounding what sort of um, clawback we're going to have to do with these kids. Uh, the, the, the rules are in, I mean, the, the results are in. We're seeing, I think, the, the mass studies, the mass scores have gone back now by a decade as far as the improvements that we used to see. And kids getting back into school, I talked to our preschool teachers that uh, we had our kids at, they're now in kindergarten. They're seeing like rampage rages of biting because kids didn't learn those key social cues because their faces were masked. Also consider this, we believe from two studies that were done that we probably missed about 250,000 cases, Jan, of potential domestic abuse, child abuse, spouse abuse, why? Because it's typically sharp-eyed teachers and administrators who catch those things and call those out, and kids weren't in school. And then when kids get back into school, how many bruises on mom's face did we miss because masks were required at drop-off? Those are things that you don't think about, the impacts, but those are very real and very lasting. Scott Atlas, when I first, around the time I first met him, he was saying, it's unforgivable that as a society we use children as shields for adults. And I, I could never shake that, that thought. It really is devastating. Uh, our, our team was fortunate enough, and this is where he kind of got our claim to fame later, was we were the main support team for Scott Atlas when he was at the White House. We were approached by several of his colleagues at Stanford saying, Scott needs some help here. What can you do? Pro bono every morning from July of 2020 to the end of that year, we would get calls from Scott, we would get texts from him, and the team would go to work. He's going to St. Louis, he needs to know what are the excess death rates there, what are you seeing as far as cases going? He had very little support there, whereas the stalwarts who had their entire teams, like Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks, were producing massive documents every day. We tried to meet that. Eventually, our charts would make it to the pressers where President Trump would laud them and Scott Atlas would handle the presser. We were very proud of the work we did there. But you come to talk to Scott and you realize just the, the complete surprise he had at the lack of quality and the lack of, of real prowess there was at the White House. To put it bluntly, I had a conversation with Scott one time and uh, I was trying to, again, 
find the best interpretation? What's the kindest interpretation I can find for why Dr. Fauci and Dr. Burks aren't turning the ship around? Scott had been completely successful in decimating the instigations of the lockdowns and school closures. Why aren't they changing policies as we got closer and closer to that vital election? Mm. And Scott, I said, Scott, maybe they're, they're just having trouble saving face. That was my interpretation. He said, no, Justin, you need to know these people, unfortunately, are not smart. Some of them are dumb. <laughs> like, oh, no. Uh, it, it really is the case that while these people have been experts in their field, they probably are behind the ball on the latest information, especially when it comes out so quickly and when their policy implications are so vast. So that was a, a really eye-opening uh, experience that I think both Scott and our team had. Let's jump to this Cochrane mask study. So what does this study tell us? Yeah, they, uh, it, it's been seriously a very contentious issue. I think it's because it's the most recognizable and it impacted almost everybody everywhere, especially when they had to wear it for it. Well, and, you, and you talk about in the book how masks essentially became talismans, like a type of virtue yeah. signaling tool. Right, right. Uh, in fact, yeah. all the evidence leading up to the pandemic, up to 2020, showed no efficacy whatsoever for these masks. Even the high quality N95 masks, even in a healthcare setting, there was no stringent evidence showing that they provided any benefit as far as curbing respiratory viral pathogens. And so when we got to uh, the pandemic, we went through all of these pieces. Uh, the Cochrane Report came out in early 2020 and did a review of, I think right then it was about uh, 10 to 12 of these things. Now they've expanded that in the last few uh, weeks here to include about 78 different studies looking at both interventions like masks, a washing of hands, physical distancing. And from all of the studies they reviewed, especially towards masking, they found there was no significant evidence whatsoever that masking would stop a viral pathogen and curb that sort of thing. In fact, they found just the opposite, that the interventions were uh, oftentimes uh, very hard for people to implement. Uh, here's a headline. It's uh, This is in the Santa Barbara News. Masks are the chief ally of the disease. The masks become a veritable incubator of bacteria. Well, that was written in 1918. We knew a hundred years ago when they tried to implement masking as a form to stop the Spanish flu that they didn't work on a policy implementation. We've just forgotten the past. We've tried it again and again. It's understandable why it was there I think even the author of the Cochrane Times, Tom Jefferson, admits that this became basically some type of sop, some type of gimme to these politicians who, who wanted a tool that they could use, right? So they can get up to the pulpit and they can say, cases are going up. You're not masking hard enough. Oh, look, cases are going down. Thank you, folks, for masking very much. Because they felt helpless in the face of this very, very hard disease to stop. Uh, spreading, and so they wanted to have tools at their disposal. Mask became a scapegoat, a talisman, as actually one of the NIH reports put it. This report on masking came out and said, there's very little evidence that we can show that they help in a healthcare setting, but maybe, they said, they could work as a talisman. I don't think I want that in my scientific literature. I certainly don't want them implemented as policies to mask my two-year-old and my five-year-old now. Yeah, and, and, and 
but they also became something like a political statement, bizarrely. Yeah, I, I suppose it's an outward expression of an inward faith, right? Uh, it, it became a very strong virtue signal for people, especially for our young adults who were going to college. I think a generation ago, my parents who went to college in the 60s would have thumbed their nose at any type of government intervention that made them wear this mask. But for our kids today, the kindest interpretation I have is that the risk to them of being captured on social media in the wrong place with the wrong implementations, not wearing a mask, not social distancing, that risk was far greater to their being than having to stick their neck out, go against the grain. Uh, I think that's why people complied is there was an actual virtual signal. It felt good to help other people. But again, once you implement a policy that is your requirement to do to help other people, even though you're not sick, there are serious ethical issues involved. And it does intimately disrupt those interactions we have with each other day to day. You're just reminding me of something uh, you wrote in the book. Uh, I'll, I'll quote it. Fear of living life is with us now. I had a guest on the show named uh, Lenore Skenazy, who runs an organization called Let Grow. She observed that there's this very weird kind of safetyism in our society where people are very kind of Will, will always gravitate towards the side of safety as opposed to the side of, say, adventure. The point being that whatever that was, whatever that, that safetyism, that, that, that strange development suddenly went on steroids in COVID. And I, I'm not even sure, how do we recover from this? It's going to be a different, difficult path to claw back um, that sort of back to normalness that we so crave after. I think politicians are very averse to anything that hints at mortality, at risking someone's uh, intimate, uh, imminent demise, right? Uh, even over in England, they're trying a trial right now in a couple streets because they've had multiple injuries of people looking at their cell phone while walking down the street and running into polls, signposts, advertisements, because they're not looking where they're going. So instead of sort of curbing that and having people learn from their mistakes, they're putting pads now around the poles so that people don't harm themselves when they run into it, right? We all live in a padded cell. And in fact, if you weren't an agoraphobe or if you were right on the cusp of that before the pandemic, you almost certainly are an agoraphobe now. And that's not easy to, to, to win back. I think um, because we rewarded that sort of virtue signaling so strongly, uh, it became part of our society now. It's gonna take us a little bit to, uh, to, to, to pawn that off there. But this is nothing new. I mean, we can go back 400 years to a real plague, the one that took over Europe in the 1600s, the plague, right? And that would take one out of three lives. But the panic that ensued around that was pretty, pretty amazing as well. There's an author from the, the 19th century, Alessandra Manzoni. And uh, Manzoni writes this book about the betrothed, a book about two lovers trying to find their way in the time of plague in Milan. And people were panicked back then. He read through the journals. One journal entry he uncovered, some real journal entries from the 17th century. An old man was in a church. It was rumored throughout the city that outside forces were coming in and they were washing the walls with infected water and anointing the pews with this infected dirt as well so that it would spread the disease and take over the city of Milan. That was the fear-induced and the, the rumor mill. 
one gentleman is at the front of the pew at, uh, at church, and someone sees him brushing off the pew and assumed that he was anointing the bench, yells out, he's anointing the bench, he's anointing the pew, he's spreading the disease. A crowd took the man outside, and the journal entry concludes, I do not think he could have survived very much longer. We saw that panic on planes, in schools, at school boards, in confrontations. When you instill that fear into society, crazy things happen. Manzoni mentions in his book, the fear of the disease besought and took over the minds of the people more than any damage that the disease itself could have done. I think that's uh, true for this pandemic too. There's a journalist in the UK, Laura Dodsworth, who was able to document how so-called nudge units in the UK government were sowing fear into the population. Um, we know even look through looking at the Twitter files and some of the work that has been done on the Missouri versus Biden case, that there's on one side censorship happening around certain types of material and on the other side there's manufacturing consensus happening around other uh, ways of viewing the pandemic and what, what you should do in response. This fear, well, I guess what I'm getting at is that there was this fear, but it seems like this fear wasn't entirely accidental. It wasn't just a necessarily a natural byproduct of, of people panicking. In his book, uh, Dr. Atlas talks about an incident where he has an encounter with Dr. Fauci in the hall. And he, he questioned him, he says, don't you think people are scared enough and Dr. Fauci replied, no, they're not nearly afraid enough. And I think that's a terrible public policy. Where I come from in San Diego, our local health director, unelected, Wilma Wooten, came to the pulpit, and this was the end of 2021, and she said, you should just assume that everyone you meet has COVID and treat them as such. Assume that everyone has COVID-19. So that's my advice. Uh, not only to parents that are sending their, their kids from out of state, that's my advice for everyone throughout the San Diego County and throughout the state and throughout the nation. And we would see accounts again and again. You remember these terrible videos of grandparents hugging their grandkids through these plastic draperies. One account I know for sure that I want to find a justice for was the uh, incident with a, 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 a woman named Franca Panatone. Franca's in Florida. She's 49 years old. She is um, uh, she's mentally disabled, okay? She has Down syndrome, and she's had it her entire life, of course. She's largely nonverbal. Her sister is her life vein. She helps her. She is her health care legal representative. She contracts what we think is COVID early in the pandemic, She's taken to a hospital. There at the hospital, she's separated from her sister. And because of the policies of that hospital and the panic of that day, her sister and her family would never see her again. She was taken to the back for the next 10 days. She suffered not knowing what was going on, having no one there to validate her, to support her. They later learned, John, I mean, this, this chokes me up what I feel about too, is reading the notes on her file, that she was so distressed, she tried to get out of her bed multiple times. They strapped her to the gurney. 
a Down syndrome woman, midlife, cut down. They watched her die over FaceTime from the parking lot. I mean, there is no justice until we find that justice for Frank and Panettone because we need to make sure this doesn't happen again. Those policies that caused fear and it rippled through society, every single industry, uh, devastating. And uh, I think that's sort of the next mode we're in is we've, we've got to have accountability and transparency on these things and justice for Franca. I'm remembering uh, one of these modelers uh, that's basically grossly overestimated how many deaths there would be being interviewed. I can't remember who it is right now, but being very kind of unapologetic. Like, you know, there's no, um, yeah, I overestimated. And, uh, but it happens. Yeah, frustrating. Uh, those were some of the first people we went after because we're, we're math guys. And when we saw their statistics and their projections and the needs that they projected in these states and the, the types of deaths they projected even early on and how you could see that they were wrong right away, we knew we were dealing with a very, very different beast. They had no concern for science or accuracy. It was all about the panic. And um, they really did feel like if they could instill enough fear in people, they would go at it. I, I'm, I'm here, uh, you know, I had some friends in Orange County they texted me, he says, Justin, both my parents have died now, neither from COVID. One died from a blood disease, the other one from an undiagnosed cancer. They were too scared to go out and seek treatment. Early on in the pandemic, my team got access to a host of death certificates, redacted of personal information, but we found what they died of. And this is in the summer of 2020. We looked at 700 of these things. There was one phrase that kept coming up, and it's something very common to when you find someone who's in a nursing home uh, in their last months of life. It said, failure to thrive. And that denotes what a lot of these people experience, especially when they, they are you know, suffering from Alzheimer's. They rely on human interaction. That's yanked from them. Their life is shortened dramatically. Before we continue, um, I want to touch on something you mentioned, that you're a math guy, um, but you're not a scientist. But you, you do have an acumen, and, and there is a way that you got into creating rational grounds. So give me the background here. Well, uh, my, my background is I've, I've been a chief marketing officer of, of several companies. I've been a chief data officer. And my forte is I'm a, I'm a, I'm a funnel doctor. A funnel is something that all business people recognize, right? You, you have certain people that come to your website. Um, they then leave their emails. We're now getting down in the funnel. And then you approach them with more interesting things about your products and services. They become an opportunity for you to convert them to a customer, right? So it goes from a lead, as we say, to a customer very quickly. Well, that's very much how the CDC looks at their numbers when they talk about people that get infected, people that test positive, people that go to the hospital, and people that die. And so if you know how those things are calculated and what you should expect generally, it's almost a, a universal sort of rule on these things, and then you look at what they projected early on, that's when I knew something was broken, because I knew funnels. And so when I looked at their numbers, and then I looked at the raw data, I said, someone has really got their thumb on the scale here, because this is not what the numbers say. 
And what we would find is we, we'd bring all sorts of practitioners from different fields to come take a look at this. We had insurance agents. We had people that were looking at um, cell phone data. We had people that were looking at UV rays because they're engineers of cement bridges that are being built. And they knew exactly what was transpiring down to the nth level. And so we all lent our expertise. But beyond all that, you don't need a degree in anything to push back on policies. Again, there's the science, and the problem is that we decided to give the reins for who makes the policy to the people who determined the science, right? Dr. Fauci and Dr. Collins, the head of the NIH, not only influenced the policy of what sort of implementations and interventions should be used, they also determined the grant money that would go out from the NIH. What were your chances of getting a paper or a, a, a proposed study approved with funding from the government if it didn't toe the line on their particular narrative? Uh, natural immunity, for example. We now know from uncovered FOIAs that Dr. Fauci and other influencers were telling them completely dismiss 100 years of epidemiology 101 which is that if you get infected with a disease, the impact of that disease down the road is likely lessened and you have some really, really good strong antibodies in your, in your body to, to deal with that. Well, they completely dismissed that notion and said everyone must get vaccinated. That decision alone may have huge, huge ramifications. We know from replete evidence and even in the trials that for young kids who have had the disease and then gets vaccinated, get, then get vaccinated, that their systems can kind of go tilt, joint pain, high fevers, because the body's already producing a lot of this stuff, and they're young, so it produces a lot more than us as in our old age here, and then their systems just can't deal with it, so it starts sending it throughout the body. Now, a lot of that is probably over my skis, a little bit beyond my pay grade as well to understand what's happening there, but given the track record, lockdowns, stay-at-home orders, vax efficacy, natural uh, immunity, everything that they did that was wrong, I think their trajectory, I, I wouldn't bet on them for sure. And I would bet on the guys who are saying there may be some serious harms in the vaccine. Well, there's some very prominent doctors right now basically calling for, at the very least, a pause of the deployment of these genetic vaccines until a much more thorough review is done. And again, going back to children, I mean, there's never been a case for vaccinating kids given that their risk was extremely low, right? So I, 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 even, even I know that uh, at this point, right? There is also quite a bit of data showing that uh, these companies that created the vaccines were aware of substantial harms that weren't necessarily publicized or that weren't publicized. Yeah, professionally, I'm a demographer. Uh, I, I rely on immense surveys of population. I've, I've worked for presidential campaigns. I've worked for Fortune 500 companies, helping them understand, here's what the public is saying. Here's what that means, right? When the surveys come back now and they show that a very large, substantial percentage of people know someone who has been harmed by the vaccine, and when you see the details come back as to who is getting the latest, what they call bivalent booster, right? The population that is getting it is very low. I don't think we've even reached 
20% right now where we are as far as 18 year olds and older who have gotten that vaccine. And for that newly approved vaccine for infants and toddlers under the age of five, it hasn't even reached 10%. Something is afoot. People are either sick and tired of the multiple boosters they're required to get. They think it's a bit of a cry wolf or it's something more replete. The word has gotten out and there are some serious known personal damages that people are recognizing or maybe they themselves experience. So I'm gonna read something else from the book. Yeah. Um, the virus of the mind has done more damage than the virus ever did. Yeah, I, I think in my own family, uh, and I think a lot of people can relate to this, contentions, people that are uh, more attuned to risk, people that are less attuned to risk. I've got parents who are elderly and it became a real confusion as to what you did. A lot of times this became very political, which automatically divided the entire public immediately. Uh, Republicans are against masks, Democrats are for them. But I think it goes a little deeper. Uh, I've now given dozens of interviews on this book, and I have one good friend who's in big, strong conservative radio talk shows. I've known him for years. I've gotten him exclusive interviews, and for some reason, he was the one holdout to give me an interview. I, I DM'd him the other day. I said, when are we going to do the show? I'll send you a book. He says, Justin, I can't. I think you're causing more harm. I think your, your attitude has actually caused deaths. And I think that's a perfect um, encapsulation of what we're experiencing. It cuts across boundaries. I think of one of my closest friends now, who is Jennifer Say. Uh, she's this spry, uh, former uh, athlete. She was the 1985 U.S. gymnastics champion. She went on to be a very successful marketing officer for Levi's. She was set for the top job. And then she gave it all up because she knew that her kids counted and that they weren't putting them back into school. She put down a golden parachute from there to exemplify what she wanted to do. She's now my friend. She was a lifetime Democrat. I have more Democrat friends, more friends on the other side of a political aisle than I could ever count. And now my lines are blurring too because I knew a lot of people that didn't step up. There's a old rabbinical story that's passed down through the ages and it goes like this. The people in Noah's day were very wicked, which is why God sent the flood. And uh, the people who didn't make it onto the boat, which were many, when the waters rose to their knees, they pulled their children to their waist. When the waters rose to their waist, they put their children in their arms. When the waters rose to their neck, they put their children on their shoulders. But when it rose even further, they put their children under their feet so they could survive. When the threat of mortality comes down from so many avenues, in it, over every medium, over every channel, everyone is telling you, you're going to die if you don't take these interventions that we want. You're going to die if you don't take these interventions that we recommend. It does crazy things to society. Some of them are, are funny or uh, are, are humorous. Like um, I did some interviews for the book with executives from the toilet paper industry. <laughs> little curious thing. Why do we all run out of toilet paper? I remember doing the run on Costco and getting my big Kirkland swab like everyone else there so I could have enough for the the stay-at-home orders. It turns out, uh, if you'll forgive the phrase, we do half of our business 
at our businesses. And the type of supply chain, the type of quality of TP there is very different than the soft, cushy, bare stuff that we're used to at home. When you cut that off, all of a sudden the manufacturers had to scramble to produce more of the cushy, bare stuff. What's funny is now that the pandemic is over, they've got all of these big reams, you know, the things you might see at a stadium mounted into the stall there. What are they going to do with them? Well, the, the marketing guys like myself, they're, they're really smart, right? And so they came up with this great idea. Charmin forever. They'll send you the metal stand with one of those big rolls. So you can mount it right next to your little latrine there. And, and there you go. Toilet paper for a month. No problem. Um, those sort of impacts are things we didn't think about. Uh, take another interview that we did with uh, engineers across the Vegas Strip. One engineer, I think his name is Michael Hurtado. Uh, he talked about how he spent the entire spring of 2020 with his team walking the floors of his hotel in Vegas that was then emptied because they had to go into every single room every week and tend to the loo, turn on the shower, make sure the sink isn't clogging up because otherwise when things are back and open, Legionnaire's disease and worse. Plus the plumbing systems of these hotels were designed for at least 10 to 15 to 20% occupancy all year round. They count on that amount of water flowing to keep things flushing. And so like Jack Nicholson in The Shining, Michael and his team walked the halls of the Aidhern properties off the Vegas Strip, going room to room. You know, all, all work and no play makes Michael Hurtado a very dull boy in Vegas. And we would see that again and again in industry after industry the impacts that no one ever saw when you turn the lights on. Just consider this, how many uh, experiments were completely uh, trumped and stowed away or killed altogether because all of the animal specimens like rats had to be put down at the spring of 2020. Years of data wiped away. How many diseases will be foregone because we stopped those experiments? How is it possible that we implemented these terrible policies that were almost ubiquitously just bad idea? Policy after policy after policy. But, you know, some people, you know, will say, well, this is the pandemic. It was all actually a big plan from the beginning. This is, you know, what we would call a moderate vi virus by pandemic standards. But, you know, we took these really disproportionate measures. And then, you know, other people might say, um, you know, the panic happened and, you know, there's just a lot of opportunists in the system. They took advantage. Where do you lie on this? I think I'm more towards the latter, only because I don't think our governments are that smart. Like you've heard these, uh, you know, implementations that somehow the vaccine contains microchips and then when the 5G uh, networks go out, they're going to turn us all into zombies. That's literally a theory out there. Uh, I, I'll, I'll have to tell you, I have not heard this that, one. That one's a great okay. one. It's fun to go yeah. down that rabbit hole. Don't, don't go down that rabbit okay. hole. But the bottom line is that's not happening because our government is just not smart enough to make that happen. So I tend to lean towards the moment of they're conniving and absolutely going after power. So if they see that gap, in this case, it was instilled by an amount fear, immense fear that we were going to lose everything and everyone was going to die they saw that moment to insert themselves. And um, as even the World Economic Forum admits a few weeks ago, they were immensely pleased how uh, they said jump and 
most of us in the world said how high. And that's unfortunate because I think um, it's, a, it's amazing what we'll give up uh, in, in place for security that we think we're getting. And we didn't get any of it. They tried to implement the same policy for everyone across the board. They tried to protect everybody and ended up protecting no one. So I think uh, in the end, they probably saw the, the breach in the wall and said, that's our moment. Send in our army. Send them in surreptitiously, but let's get them in there. And now they're well positioned. There's a good feeling of people want to say, I want to put this in my rear view mirror, right? Even my good friends and family members are telling me, Justin, I'm, I'm so glad that you're talking about some other things other than COVID. I think they hear me repeating myself. Maybe they're sick of it a little bit, but, but at the same time, I think what people fail to realize, there was the, the battle against the disease, but there was a, another movement afoot, which was implemented throughout the policies. Those same tactics, stay-at-home orders, testing for whatever else, physical implementations, government override of your rights, those are just tools. Those are tactics. They will pull those straight out of their dormant toolbox any day for the latest boogeyman that they think is required to curb this altogether. Climate change. Easily any one of those policies could be implemented. Heck, it took uh, the climate people four decades to convince us and put into law that what we exhale was killing the planet. It took them, what, four weeks to uh, convince us that what we were exhaling was killing grandma. The next thing is going to go even quicker. Masks for climate change. We guarantee you coming up. Masks for climate change. Well, I suppose anything is possible. What are you, these you're days, breathing right? CO2 at me right yeah. now, Jan. I can feel it over here. You know, so you've got to be careful. Right? Let's, let's whisper a little more. I mean, I'm a tenor, and by one study, tenors exude more air. That, that was an actual study in the middle of this whole thing. Someone drove the world insane, right? And we started doing studies around which section of the choir would be more infected than the other. We decided to mask them all just to be safe. Well, so let's talk about this, okay? Because society did go crazy. There were some unbelievably authoritarian policies that were implemented. There's emergency orders still in play, which allow all sorts of suspension of rights, again, even if those aren't as heavily in play. What's to prevent this from happening again? Very little, and unfortunately because um, Pandora's box were unleashed. Uh, I was a, a huge supporter of, of President Trump. I, I predicted he was going to win in 2016, much to many of my friends' chagrin. When the, uh, when the pandemic happened, and we all sort of agreed to a, a two-week pause in life to try to curb this thing, what do we know, right? Then uh, I remember that fateful day, March 29th, 2020, three years ago when President Trump got up to the pulpit and the Rose Garden presser, Dr. Fauci, Dr. Burks, Vice President Pence, and the rest of them all there, and said, we're extending the federal recommended lockdown for another 40 days. And I tweeted out, he just lost the election. He just lost the election. I'm saddened that I was, that I was right on that, because I knew even just demographically, if 3% of the population over the age of 65 decided to stay home and not vote for anyone, nor Trump, he would lose, because we rely on some of those demographics to carry us over the, the board there. But I also knew that this was 
going to unleash Pandora's box. 50 governors, 3,200 unelected health directors, 13,000 school districts across the country that have their own policies. It's a mess out there. You could go county to county. Your restaurant could be 500 feet from another restaurant in another county. You're closed down, but they can take people right up to the counter. It made no sense whatsoever. Unfortunately, I don't think any of that's going to be fixed until we get something at the top that can go in and take a look at all the wrenches that have been thrown in the works down below. We're, we're gonna need some really strong leadership at the top to figure out what's going to happen because right now it's still a mess. Emergency orders are there. Take for example, Hollywood. This is a perfect example of how I don't know when they'll ever be out of the pandemic. I don't know if you know this, but every single movie set still tests to the nth degree and PCR tests as well. And they're incentivized to do so. They employ tens of thousands of people now whose job it is just for COVID safety. And then if you're an actor, you actually get a little bit of a stipend if you're called in for a last minute little role there. You have to go and get a PCR test. They'll throw you 100, 150 bucks. That's good money in the pocket. I mean, so there's, there's just, it's incentivized in totally the wrong way. A lot of the reason why these, these emergency orders are still in place is our hospitals are still recovering. They need these reimbursements in big ways. When you shut down the most profitable parts of the business, and this is, again, my kindest interpretation of what happened at the hospitals, any admin worth his salt is gonna say, you just took away everything that makes my hospital profitable and keeps us in business. What am I going to do? Elective surgeries? I can't do those. And so what happens? They almost go under except for all this reimbursement money. In fact, in October of 2020, they lobbied again for the CMS, which handles all the reimbursements for uh, hospitals to get government money and said, can we make an observation bed? Someone who we think is here for COVID. Can we make that a COVID patient? Sure, you can make that a COVID patient. Well, $39,000 in the pocket right there. I mean, these are these are actual equations that they have in their brain to say, how do I stay in business? So those emergency powers are gonna stay in place, especially as we go through rocky times. Although I hope they'll curb down here in the next few months. We'll see how it goes. I wanna mention something that I like to remind people of, which is that one of the consequences of all these policies was the biggest upward transfer of wealth in history by a margin, I think. Um, essentially to the, you know, the richest people in society. At the beginning of the pandemic, I had a couple really big clients. Um, one was providing golf excursions for baby boomers, dead. Next one was uh, an online system for parents to evaluate which school to send their college kids to, dead. And then the third one was a high-end vacation club for families. By the time the spring was gone, I had no clients to speak of. I had lots of time on my hand, which is kind of why I dove into this. But if I was still a chief marketing officer at a large tech company, I might have kept my mouth shut because it might have impacted my job. I might have been kicked out of there for all of my finagling out there. I can't imagine some people that really had to keep their mouth shut. Otherwise, they'd lose their job entirely. Or you look at people who are well into you know, sort of white labor classes whose uh, laptop class kids could enjoy the refreshments of the backyard, a big pool, uh, bring out the laptop, they maybe bring in tutors. That's a, an incredible amount of um, success that they've had in their lives. And to give that all up, to go against the grain is, is a tough call to, to make there. But I think um, you definitely see that uh, when you look in LA, for example, 
and during the lockdowns, the first lockdowns and the stay-at-home orders from school, and they went virtual, that a third of all the students in the LA Unified School District never signed on to a single class. And I don't think that's because they were lazy or indolent or just skipping school altogether. Ah, we're doing virtual school, I can skip it. No, it's because they're probably taking care of things at home because their mom is off, she's working, their dad is off, he's working because he's an essential worker and they're at risk, which is what a crazy scene we put ourselves into. It, it drove this entire wedge into a, a caste system. And if you're lucky to end up on, on one side of the, the fence, one side of the tracks, you had a, a pretty easy pandemic. In fact, it was, it was probably nice. Maybe your family took off and, and went to Mexico for a month, right? And you could pat yourself on the back saying, look, we're, we're sheltering in place, we're doing our part. Yeah, it, it's, um, it's unfortunate how it pitted us against each other. And, and I think that, uh, that immense transfer of wealth, I mean, uh, while Etsy shops uh, suffered, the, the, the big store shops uh, you know, flourished, and I think we're gonna see the impact of spending all that money to save the rest of the world when, uh, when, when things come to bear here. So it's not gonna be pretty. Let's look at accountability. So there is this new Republican Congress is promising accountability. There's a whole select committee on government overreach. Um, there's the COVID select committee. There's, you know, the Energy and Commerce Committee has, is looking at pandemic policy and its impacts. Um, there's many areas basically where accountability can be found. So how is that gonna happen? I think that's, that is our entire story for the next several years, which is truth, and accountability. We have to know what transpired. There has to be immense daylight on all these things. I remember my, my own personal social media accounts were taken down in the summer of 2021. I had no idea. We come to find out later that there were actual directors of the uh, FDA who were now working for Pfizer, uh, Scott Gottlieb, who personally asked Twitter to take down my account. We know from inner workings that Vivek Murthy and uh, that Jen Psaki of, of, of the White House, they were personally working with Facebook and Twitter to call out balls and fouls and strikes that they wanted taken down. Uh, we've increased uh, disinformation research and tracking uh, within the Surgeon General's office. We're flagging problematic posts for Facebook uh, that spread disinformation. Uh, it, what, what, a, what a pressure to put on things there. And I, I think what we, what we tend to find is that we need to have that transparency to find out what were all the mistakes that were made, but also we need transparency of how were these decisions made? Who decided that natural immunity should be discounted? Who decided that based on all the evidence we had up until even March and April of, of 2020 that masks work, that we implemented them anyways? Who decided on remdesivir as a five-day treatment that extended the stay of hospitals and skewed the stats? I mean, all these details that uh, a lot of us have forgotten because we've known so much now and learned so much over the pandemic. All of those need to be brought to bear. There was a recent article, very uh, prominent scientist uh, who does great work, Emily Oster, and she talked about how there was a need for, uh, for um, uh, what's the term I was looking for? Amnesty. Oh, so uh, Emily Oster, who is this, this fantastic author, very astute statistician, and she wrote this article for The Atlantic that uh, there was a need for amnesty. I think first that's an admission that someone did something wrong, uh, but also her story is, I think, very illustrative of, of this issue. She and her team had all the data 
on masking kids. They had tracked very closely schools in Florida, North Carolina, and New York down to the district level to find out what were their policies and then what were the caseloads. Once you came out with the preprint, it turns out that the schools that had more masking actually had more cases. But she stopped right there. The pressure was too immense in the scientific industry to go against the grain. She dropped it, submarine the data. It just kind of sat there stagnant. And uh, I think before we have amnesty, we need to have accountability. When you have people like Lena Wen, who is a prominent physician who uh, was on CNN almost every day talking about how the unvaccinated should have fewer rights, they should be kept at home. And now she's come out and admitted that was probably wrong. It was wrong to mask kids. I welcome her to, as we say, team reality. Leave team apocalypse, folks. Come to team reality and realize what has really occurred over the last three years. But there's a caveat. Before you get amnesty, you must never have an influence on public policy again. I, I tell my team, don't expect Dr. Fauci to be frog-marched against the wall somewhere after this whole thing. No, but but we should make sure he never has influence on public policy again. Go about your retirement, that's fine, but you should never influence again these policies that caused our children immense harm. We're not gonna have that. If you were gonna give some advice, which I'm sure you know, you're gonna be asked to um, on what to do, like some very specific and very obvious um, laws, frankly, that should be passed to, to prevent, for example, let's call it the climate lockdowns, right? right? I'm not saying there are going to be climate lockdowns, but as you suggested, there could be climate lockdowns, right? Well, the investigations really have to steer into these questions, as, as you say. I example, Jim Jordan has this select committee looking at the weaponization of the DOJ, how the DOJ was actually targeting parents who were getting rowdy at school board meetings, right, and tagging them in their systems with a terrorist, domestic terrorist tag uncalled for, untoward, obvious outside influence to do that. He's going to be tearing that apart and looking distinctly at that. I hope, and my recommendation, is that he takes it a step further and he brings those parents up and he says, so tell us, what were you yelling about there at the school board? You'll find a lot of it had to do with COVID. Or think about the massive hearings we're going to have on all sorts of things around commerce and industry the recession that we're probably experiencing right now, a law that has direct impact towards COVID. I know I was a, a, a big buoyed uh, bolster of uh, the conservative causes at the end of last year, 2022, looking to the election. I thought there was gonna be a distinct red wave until 10 days out from the election. I looked at the mail returns and I said, oh no, we're in trouble. I think COVID has killed the red wave. And the reason why is that 17 states completely upended the way that they did mail-in ballots. Here in California, every single home gets a ballot now in the mail. And Pennsylvania, if you wanted an absentee ballot in 2018, in 2016, you had to show like a doctor's note that you were invalid at home. It went from 200,000 absentee ballots to 2 million ballots at home. On the day of the election, you look at some of the, the, the contested Senate elections between Oz and Fetterman. 
Dr. Oz had about 2.1 million people come out to vote for him on the day of the election. Fetterman had only about 1.7 million people come out to vote for him, but he took advantage of the new mail-in ballot laws. And whether there was finagling or misgivings or uh, real issues with those ballots, I don't care. He was better at collecting those than Oz did, and he won the election. 17 states experienced that. They haven't rolled those back. And we're going to have some real issues. I think only Georgia and a few other states have had some real success in rolling those things back. As far as other legislative implementations, we need to look to places like Florida, where Governor DeSantis has allowed counties, for example, to declare emergencies, but only for a short period of time. Then it needs to be reviewed. Otherwise, that emergency declaration will be wiped away. Or his Patients' Bill of Rights. Again, justice for Franca, we are not going to allow an America where you do not have the right to see your loved one pass away into the next world next to their bed. Those are things I think at the federal level where we can feel very strongly about. I think also the, the impact on children is something we need to consider very strongly. The median age, the average age of death for COVID was 80 years old. The average age of death for the Spanish flu was 29 years old. If this was a pandemic where those being felled were millennials and younger, I think we probably had a, would have a very, very different reaction. I don't know what I would do then. I know I would still stick by my rights. I know it would probably be even tougher then. But in the end, I think we have to look at what were our rights that were infringed? Our rights to free assembly and religion? How did we, how did we give those up? And we gave them up readily. My own church, other churches, they all came to the conclusion that you were going to go home and you were going to participate in church and uh, do it over Zoom class. The body of Christ in the Christian church, for almost all Christian churches across the country and the world, became an experience of Zoom. What a terrible, terrible situation. I can attest to the, the physical ailments. I can attest to the projections of cancer deaths because they miss screenings. I can attest to the types of suicides that you might see because of unemployment. That may be, in the end, more devastating than anything else. Team reality and team apocalypse. I've had a lot of discussion about divisive language, and you know we've talked about the pandemic of the unvaccinated. Um, does it really make sense to create these categories? Uh, I think for purposes when they're coming at you with war, it was easy to designate that. These are more rhetorical and strategic sort of categories. I, I there were debates at one point. I thought that fighting the masks was just going to get us consternated every which way, that we should probably just drop it all together. But in the end, I'm glad we fought to die on that hill. I think it became a, a symbol in some cases. A talisman. A talisman, right? We, we've got to, but we've got to find some way to heal these things. What's interesting is it, it's amazing how quickly political dogmas dissolve across uh, a pair of families when the same people are coming after both of your kids in the same way. I, I think um, understanding that impact is going to be tantamount, especially when we're talking about legislation. We, uh, we're, we're adults, we'll try to deal with it as we can, but our kids, they're, they're going to need some protection from uh, the harms we instilled on them. My wife just recently had an incident of our child when I dropped her off at kindergarten. She had a stuffy nose. She went in and she blew her nose. And the, Teacher, our kindergarten teacher, very smart woman, but I, I know she's nervous about this whole thing. And so she had her mask during the day. Our daughter later came back and she said, yeah, I wore a mask at school today. 
we didn't want that. And so we told her, we said, please don't mask our kid in the future, and that was it. My wife posted about it online, and all of a sudden the vitriol she got was amazing, uh, astounding, embarrassing. It was just awful. It was wrenching. It was, it was horrible. And so now we look at that and we say, is that what we're still facing now? Is this the America that we've come out to? We're going to have to find ways to bridge that divide. Um, again, for people that are making the journey, that's what this book is for. Uh, it is for those people that maybe haven't, you know, have been with us all this whole time, but also for those people that are just starting their journey back now. And I want them to sort of catch up to speed with what's going on. It's for that one neighbor of yours who's still in his car, double masking alone. Right? Just put it on his windshield. It'll be right there for you. But I think the, the idea is we're going to have to find ways to, to bridge those divides because they're deep. Maybe, uh, as the old Broadway song goes, time heals everything, and we'll be able to make good with that. But um, I'm afraid these same tactics are now part of the tool belt of the authoritarians in this world, and they'll, uh, they'll pull those straight out to, to use against us at some future point. Well, Justin, it's been a real pleasure speaking with you, finally on camera here. <laughs> yes. And, uh, you know, again, I'll be reading you over at rationalground.com. Uh, the book, of course, is uh, gone viral. Such a pleasure to have you on. Thanks, y'all. Great to be with you. Thank you all for joining Justin Hart and me on this episode of American Thought Leaders. I'm your host, Yanya Kelleck. Mm -hmm.